Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's number one, number two employee. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie, it's me, Jamie. This is your daily pep talk. I know it's been rough going ever since people found out about your acapella group, Mad Harmony, but you will bounce back. I mean, you're the guy always helping people find coverage options with the Name Your Price tool. It should be you giving me the pep talk. Now get out there, hit that high note, and take Mad Harmony all the way to nationals this year! Sorry, it's pitchy. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. We're a weekly radio show podcast. Love Talk Radio. Welcome to Creating a Family. Talk about infertility and adoption. Today's show will be on what happens in an infertility lab. We're a weekly radio show podcast, and to make sure you automatically hear about each episode, subscribe to our show at either iTunes or on the radio page of our website, creatingafamily.org slash radio show. I'm Dawn Davenport, your host and the director of Creating a Family, a nonprofit providing education and support for infertility and adoption. You can find us online at creatingafamily.org. The Creating a Family radio show is proud to say we are underwritten by our corporate sponsor, Faring Pharmaceutical. Faring has a Heart Plus Pharmacy Savings Card, which helps patients, both cash-paying and insured patients, save money on their fertility medications. To get more information on the Heart Plus Pharmacy Savings Card, you can talk to your doctor or visit the Faring website at faringfertility.com slash heart. Or you can always do it the old-fashioned way and give them a call at 1-888-FARING. That's F-E-R-R-I-N-G. As I mentioned, today's show will be talking about what happens in an infertility laboratory. How important is the laboratory to the success of IVF and how do labs differ? Our guest today is Scott Kratka. He is Senior Embryologist at the Reproductive Science Center of New Jersey and board certified by the American College of Embryology. Welcome, Scott Kratka, to Creating a Family. Hi, well, thank you very much for having me today. Well, I think we, as it's always a good idea to start at the beginning, so let's start at the beginning, uh, both figuratively and, and literally here in this case. Uh, can you walk us through a, a typical IVF procedure from the lab's standpoint, the lab's point of view? So we've had egg retrieval, and you have, so you have eggs and you have the sperm, uh, you have a sperm sample at this point. So you've got those. What, what's the next step that, uh, from uh, an embryologist? What do you do then? Well, it depends on the the method of insemination that we'll be using. If we're using uh, what we call standard or conventional insemination, the eggs are will be in the incubator, collected and put into a, a specific culture dish with culture media in it. And while that is being done, the egg retrie- retrieval is being done, the sperm is being processed in the andrology laboratory. <clears throat> About four hours after the egg retrieval has been completed, the sperm and the eggs are put together in a culture dish, put back into the incubator, and let set overnight And until we look at them the following morning to determine if fertilization has occurred. <clears throat> if we're doing ICSI, um, intracytoplasmic sperm injection, um, it's a little bit different and a little bit more involved than just uh, putting the egg and the sperm together and letting them do their thing together. Um, we have to take some cells off the outside of the egg to get down to the egg itself. So we use an enzyme called hyaluronidase, and we strip off all those extra cells that are around the egg. And once that's done, the eggs are then put back into the incubator until we're ready to use them for sperm injection. Um, about Two hours after hyaluronidase, we take the eggs out, put them into a, another culture dish, and perform ICSI, which is where we take a single sperm and directly inject it into um, into each mature egg, each egg that is ready to mature maturity-wise yes. to receive uh, a sperm. Let me ask you a question here. Mm-hmm. So with ICSI, how do you... How do you know which uh, – you're probably using all the eggs that you have uh, at that point. Uh, so I was going to ask, how do you select the egg? But I suppose that at this point, if the egg uh, has survived the retrieval and, uh, and, and, and looks ripe or mature, you're going to use that egg. Is that correct? Well, that's actually not 
perfectly correct. Um, some of the eggs that we re- that we retrieve are actually immature, and they're not able to uh, receive a, a sperm. So the way we determine that, especially with ICSI, is that there is a polar body that is extruded. And that means that the egg is stuck in what is called meiosis two. It's a stage of maturity of the egg, and that is a mature egg that is ready to receive sperm. Metaphase one or an M1 egg is not. It does not have that polar body that is extruded, meaning there's still too many chromosomes within the egg. If you introduce more chromosomal material from the sperm, it will, number one, it won't fertilize. And if it does fertilize, it will fertilize abnormally. The other egg would be a germinal vesicle, which is a very, very immature egg, which would not receive any sperm, which would never fertilize. And those eggs are typically discarded, certainly during an ICSI case, because they can't be used. um, You can't put a sperm in them to fertilize them normally. So I want to come back to the ICSI, but assuming you're not doing ICSI, do you, and this may be overly simplistic, but do you just put all the eggs in with all the sperm? And, That's correct. Uh, and just see what's going to happen. You don't have to look in and say, okay, let me exclude, let me take this one out because it doesn't have the polar body and this other one is extremely immature. You just put them in and, and at that point, if they're not ready, they're not going to be inseminated. And if they are ready, they, they, they may or they may not. Okay. Is That's that right? correct. Okay. Now, going back to ICSI, um, one of the questions we've got was, how do you select, and I'm just going to paraphrase it here, how do you select the sperm um, to be used? Because you will have, I mean, even in a uh, uh, where you've got uh, low sperm count, you would still have, you know, millions of sperm to choose from, potentially. So how do you select, how do you know which sperm is going to be most likely to be able to uh, inseminate and, and create an embryo? We put we put the sperm that we're using for ICSI into a drop of a solution called PVP. It's a very, very viscous solution that will slow the motility of the sperm down, the movement of the sperm down, so that we're able to actually capture the sperm to use them for injection. Um, but what we're looking for is, number one, a sperm that's moving. The only way that we can determine if a, if a cell or a sperm is alive is if it's moving. If it's not moving, it doesn't necessarily mean that the cell is not alive, but we really have no visual cue to alert us to whether this, this cell is usable or alive. Mm-hmm. Secondly, we would look at um, the rate of progression, meaning how fast it was it we're swimming in the in the solution of PVP. Believe it or not, there are very visible differences between the the way these sperms swim after they're washed. And thirdly, we would look at the morphology, which is the shape of the sperm. If there are any noted head defects or or neck defects or tail defects, we would not use those sperm unless those are the only sperm that we had available to us at the time of ICSI. So the the viscous, the thick solution, does it, uh, it, yeah, I can only imagine that slowing them down because you're actually manually grabbing them. Is is that correct when you say, I mean, you, do you, this is a, a, a person who is actually trying to, is it, would tweezers be the accurate um, uh, description of what you're doing to pick, to, to actually get it? Is that, or is that overly simplistic? No, it's not actually tweezers. It would be a, it would be a needle, a very, very fine needle um, that is used on a, on a set of instruments that are on a micro, that are attached to a microscope. It's all microscopic. So everything is mm-hmm. done under the microscope. And there's a bunch of, of levers and knobs that we have in order to make macro movements or large movements of your hand and create very micro or small movements underneath the microscope. Mm-hmm. And again, it's kind of like a big video game, if you can picture <laughs> it. Um, but you're using these joysticks and these knobs to control, uh, you know, again, moving your hands. You're moving your hands, you know, centimeters or inches. And under the microscope, you're moving them actually microns. So um, Which is so cool when you think about it. I mean, it really is. It is. ICSI is, is, in my mind, by far the biggest breakthrough in in our field in the past 20 years. Um, oh, the, yeah. It, I, I, it, you know, 
Although egg freezing is, well, we'll talk about that in a little bit, but go ahead. <laughs> no, no, no. It, it really affords us the ability to use almost all all men's genetic material to help create embryos. There are still some men that we aren't able to use their own sperm, and that, of course, we can. Uh, the couple can purchase sperm through a, a through a sperm bank. But when I started doing IVF back in 1988, we did a lot more, used a lot more donor sperm because it wasn't. It wasn't in the in the you know out there. It wasn't hadn't been founded yet, so we used mm-hmm. a lot more donor sperm on uh, on couples uh, as opposed to now. Now we can oh. retrieve sperm from the epididymis, from the testicle, and use those to create embryos. Yeah, I mean that's yes. Even I mean theoretically, if you can only find one, um, that that one might be enough. So uh, you use a needle, mm-hmm. and you actually. Obviously, all this is taking place microscopically. Um, how do you get the sperm into the egg uh, when you're doing ICSI? The sperm is pulled into this microscopic needle, and uh, in the PVP drop, then the needle is moved into the droplet that has the eggs, the mature eggs. You use another instrument, another needle, to hold the egg, so if you can picture the egg being a three-dimensional ball, it's sitting on the bottom of a dish, and then I have a holding pipette that is on the left side of it. Mm-hmm. And you introduce the um, the ICSI needle at 3 o'clock. You gently penetrate the inside of the egg, and you deposit the sperm directly into the center of the of the egg. Um, it's It's... A really interesting process. It would be yeah, great if I've, I had I've a seen, video to to show you. It would be a lot more. I've seen the videos. I find them actually. You know what? If you can, uh, we'll, we'll talk. Uh, I'll uh, send. Uh, I'll send you an email. I would like to. If we could find a video, do you guys have one? I would love to. Uh, to me, it's just it's it's just an amazing thing to see. I could post that. Um, do you know if you have a video, or do you know where uh, we I can do. access? I do. I have a video, um, just not on this computer that I can send you okay. at this point, at this moment. Okay, but you could. But if I contact you after the show, would you be able Absolutely. to? Absolutely. Okay, yep. I, I will. So our audience, uh, so you couldn't see this because it truly is. Uh, I mean, it's just amazing uh to to see. I it's it's it almost makes me hold my breath while it's happening. Anyway, I would love to. Uh, Okay, that's uh, guys. Check out the uh, blog. To, um, check out the blog tomorrow, and uh, we will uh, uh, do our best to embed that video. If it's not, that means we've had some technical problems. But we'll do our best to to uh, um, embed that. All right. Um, so it, now, is the, is it possible to uh, see whether or not? Uh, well, let me back up. Let me ask the next obvious question. I would assume as soon as you take the uh, needle out after you have uh, ejected the sperm into the inside of the egg, the the the, the egg the the, the 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 penetration the hole that you have created immediately closes back up and, and obviously does not leave a permanent uh, uh, it's not, does not cause problems for the egg as far as fertilization the fact that you've penetrated it with a um, with a needle. That's correct. It's a it's a very resilient membrane that immediately surrounds the egg. It's very elastic. It can be sometimes very difficult to break, but once you are able to penetrate it and deposit the sperm into the egg, within three to four to five minutes, if you were to go back and look at that egg again, it would be very difficult for you to determine where the penetration happened because uh, that membrane just relaxes right back. It repairs itself, and it's very difficult to... You'll be able to see the sperm within the egg, but to see the penetration is is, is almost impossible. And do you have any way, having done this as many years as you've done this, um, do you have any way of knowing if uh, once you've, uh, you know, shortly thereafter, whether or not uh, it will work, whether or not that egg is actually going to be fertilized? Because just because you put the sperm there doesn't mean automatically um, that that egg is going to fertilize, right? That's correct. There's there's no way to know if fertilization will take place because there still are a lot of 
chemical reactions and reactions between the sperm and the egg that have to happen in order for fertilization to actually take place. Um, I can tell you that typically in most centers you're talking about it between a 70 to 80 percent fertilization rate. So meaning every seven to eight seven to eight eggs of every 10 that were injected will end up being fertilized. And that's with ICSI? That's correct. Wow, that's just amazing. Um, that's, yeah. Uh, and how long at this point do you have to wait, whether or not you have, uh, the, the sperm has gotten into the egg through the through its own efforts uh, or through ICSI, how long do you have to wait uh, before you know whether or not an embryo has been formed? We usually wait about 16 hours until um, the till we can see signs, outward signs of fertilization. We would look for what they're called a pronuclei. That would be one nucleus formed from the egg, one nucleus formed from the sperm. So you can you can literally see 16 hours later that there are two what we call pronuclei in within the egg, and eventually those will combine, join together, and then you'll start getting cell division uh, soon thereafter. Okay, excellent. All right, you're listening to Creating a Family. We're, today we're talking about uh, what happens in an, embry- in, in, in an embryology lab, an infertility clinic lab, and we're talking with Scott Kratka. This show, as well as all the resources provided by Creating a Family, could not happen without the generous support of our gold sponsors. And I want to take a moment to let you know about them. We have Fairfax Cryobank. Fairfax has been a leader in sperm donation for over 25 years and is dedicated to supplying updated, verified, and accurate medical and personal information on their donors. We also have the Reproductive Medicine Associates of New Jersey. They are a recognized scientific and patient leader in the field of infertility with seven offices in New Jersey. So let me come back now. And um, so we've talked about, uh, at this point, the um, we have either... A uh, um, we have a fertilized we have an embryo created either through ICSI or through um, the the sperm's own efforts and penetration, and uh, and we've waited at 16 hours. We will have a, we'll we will know whether or not we have those. Tell me something about the medium that uh, these embryos are being grown in. Has and, and, and has there been advances in the um, in what the medium? Uh, what's the, what the makeup of the medium is, or whatever that has in, that that has improved survival of embryos. The medias have changed uh, pretty dramatically. Um, we're now using. Uh, I'm personally using here single culture media that we're able to use from the moment that the eggs are collected till day six of of embryo growth within the laboratory. Um, we used to use a sequential media, which was a specific media used for fertilization, a specific media that was used during the cleavage stage of growth, and a specific uh, media that was used um, into the blastocyst stage of, of, of embryo growth. So there have been uh, many uh, changes and advances in the in the culture medium and the supplementation um, of 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 these medias with proteins um, over the many years. Uh, uh, they're very uh, complex medias. They are medias that are been generated, and there have been a lot of studies that try to mimic what is happen, happening in, in vivo in the, in the fallopian tube environment, uh, different changes in glucose levels and other amino acid uh, requirements at different stages of growth that would, again, mimic what happens in these embryos, travels through the fallopian tube and then into the, uter- uh, into the uterine cavity. And, and like, is it just purified water, or is it? Um, does it have? This may be a dumb question, but does it have food for the? Um, because at this point, until the embryo is actually implanted, um, until the embryo actually implants, I should say, in the uterus, it's not. It, it's 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 separate from, although it's in the environment of the of the woman. 
it's separate from it's not being it's not being controlled it has no blood flow to it or anything like that so so does the media need to have anything in it to support um, uh, the life of the uh, from a food or anything like that standpoint well, it does. It has glucose and it has energy supplies uh, for for the embryo. It also has a cocktail of, of amino acids um, in order to support the growth of the embryo. Um, there, at this stage of development of the embryo, there is no blood supply that is required because even in vivo, uh, within the uterine, uh, in in the fallopian tube environment and or the uterus. Attachment hasn't happened yet, so implantation hasn't actually occurred yet. So um, these embryos literally in vivo will float around for four, five, six days within the fallopian tube and into the uterus until the embryo has has grown to a point where it hatches from its shell, its zona pellucida, and is able to implant into the endometrium, uh, the, the, the lining within the uterine, the uterine cavity. So at this point, there's no blood supply required for these embryos to grow. Right. But there are energy sources and there are amino acids and, and sugar sources that these, that these embryos will need in order to survive because they're very dynamic and they, are, they require an incredible amount of energy to, to, to continue to grow. And and the advances of, of being able to use what you call a single culture is that it is better for the embryos not to have to be uh, changed out in cultures. Is that why the is that the, the the advantage of why you would do a single culture versus uh, the sequential cultures you mentioned? You know, for, um, for initial fertilization, for and then up to blastocyst, that type of thing, where you're changing the cultures. What's the advantage well, of a single culture? Well, you would like to not try not to disturb these embryos as much as possible. So every time you open the, and close the door of an incubator, you change that environment within that incubator. And it takes time for these incubators to recover. Um, you know, it could take 20 minutes to 30 minutes for temperature to come back up, CO2 concentrations to, 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 to come where it, where they're required to be, humidity. All these things change every time you open and close an incubator door. So we're always, as embryologists, very cautious as to how many times we're actually opening and closing a door, how many times you're taking a dish out of the incubator to look at it. Um, again, these embryos are not used to being seeing light, so every time you put them on a microscope and you shine a light, these are all things that is not are not normal for embryos within the fallopian tube environment or again in vivo it's very different so especially here we try to to keep these embryos within the culture system undisturbed for as long as possible and that goes to your point of not having to continue to swap out media that if you are able to put embryos in one media and leave them for several days it, it will allow that embryo to sit in a, in, a, in a consistent environment for a longer period of time. You know, I, I've wondered about that with the, the issue of light. Have there been any studies on that? Because obviously, duh, the, the inside of a woman's body is completely dark or mostly dark. Um, so, uh, it, you know, and, and a laboratory is not. Um, have there been any studies? Well, first of all, do you keep uh, now that you're using a single culture? Do you keep the embryos in a dark environment? Well, within the incubator, when the doors are closed, it is a it is a dark environment. But again, every time you open up the door, there it's a glass door within it, and therefore light will will penetrate. Um, I, I don't know of any actual uh, studies that have have shown. Um, I know that there are studies that have shown room light um, that have broken down medias for being exposed to room light for long periods of times. Um, so we keep a low, uh, lower light within the lab, of which, again, uh, you know, whenever you take a dish out, you're exposing these eggs, these lights. Um, but we we really try to to not disturb these and not create an unusual environment. Unfortunately, by putting them on a microscope uh, stage and you shine a light to, to see, you, you, you need that light in order to see what was within that culture dish. So it's very difficult to um, not be able to view or to be able to view an embryo without light. So it has to have light, but we do it for very short periods of time. 
How often do you have to actually, you know, there's a part of me that would just want to look all the time. Oh, is it growing? Is it growing? You know, or, you know, is it dividing? Is is the the rate of division what we're expecting? Um, But uh, how often uh, do you you say you try to minimize the number of times? How often, uh, you know, assuming that that, that you're not having reasons to, that something's not going wrong and you're having to look more often, how often do you have to actually put an embryo on a slide or take it out into the light uh, in, in a typical type of, of, of process, IVF? Well, each laboratory would have different theories on that. Um, I can tell you what what what, what we do here is okay. we would look at them for fertilization check, um, which would be the day after the egg retrieval, and then we would not look at them until day three of culture. So if day zero was the egg retrieval, Day one would be the fertilization check. We would not look at the embryos until the morning of day three to determine if we have enough embryos to either culture to blastocyst or we would like to do use the embryos that we have at that point in order to do the embryo transfer on day three. So um, we're really exposing them at the insemination on day zero. We're looking at them on day one for the fertilization check and then again on day three to determine uh, what day we'd like to do the embryo transfer, and then again on day five and day six to determine if we've cultured them long enough for transfer on day five to determine which embryos for transfer or to determine if we have any blastocysts that we'd like to to cryopreserve. Gotcha. All right. We are, you are listening to Creating a Family. Today we're talking about what happens in an infertility lab. Let me take a moment to let you know that Creating a Family has the largest infertility and adoption communities on the social networks, and we would love to have you join us. On Twitter, you can connect with us at Creating a Family. That is the Twitter handle. On Facebook, there are three ways. You can connect with me personally at dawn.davenport1, or we would love to have you like our Facebook page, which is the Creating a Family Facebook page. Uh, or you can join the Creating a Family Facebook support group. So you can find either the page or the support group by typing in the words Creating a Family into the Facebook search box, and both of them will pop right up. You can like the page and join the group. All right, Scott, we have a question from Lynn. She said, I've heard that air purification is important. Can your guest explain why and how it works? Also, how do you find out if the lab has a purifier? Are they standard for most labs? All right, let's talk about air purification. Uh, and, and I uh, am assuming that Lynn is speaking of the, the actual ambient air in the laboratory itself, but I might be wrong on that. So maybe I shouldn't, shouldn't make an assumption. Uh, so, Scott, tell us, tell us about air purification and its importance. Well, uh, air quality is very, very important. Um, we... I mean, most IVF labs would have uh, filter systems in their uh, main supply of air into the room that we're taking out what are called VOCs, volatile organic compounds. And these are compounds that are in normal, everyday air, but that are have the ability to, to, to dissolve or be absorbed into the culture media. And are detrimental in uh, embryo growth. Um, We can talk about uh, acetones, uh, ketones, uh, alcohols, those types of of things that are present in everyday air. Um, We we like to take those out, and we use filters that are either embedded with charcoal, uh, potassium permanganate, chemicals that absorb those volatile organic compounds and don't allow them to be within an, an, an IVF laboratory. So, if, if they were not taken out, would you see a decrease in your fertility rates? You definitely clearly could. Um, that, that is a big, uh, a big problem for, for embryologists is to maintain these environments because, every, again, every time you open up your incubator, you allow this, what you call the ambient air, your, your air that is within your laboratory will then now be inside of your, your uh, incubator, which is where your embryos are growing. We provide gas 
carbon dioxide or nitrogen to keep pH levels of the the uh, culture media consistent, um, and those gases are filtered as well. So it is really important to make sure we don't use any alcohols within the laboratory. We try to limit any of the alcohols or cleaning solutions in any of the adjacent rooms from being used because those, once they get within, to, within the air system, they're very difficult to, to remove unless you have filters in your in your air duct system, and there are portable filters that you can have within your laboratory, which, again, most laboratories um, do have inside their labs. All right. See, now maybe this is an unfair question because, obviously, you're going to have a uh, – you're an embryologist. But how important is the embryology lab to the success of infertility treatment? We don't tend to think in terms of that, whether uh, – the patient community – uh, whether we should or not, we, we tend to think of the lab and we look at the at the the success rates of that lab, but we don't really think about the laboratory. And perhaps we should. So, how important is the the lab uh, fundamentally to the success of, of of an IVF or any other form of of treatment? Well, you kind of put me on the spot here with that question. <laughs> yeah, but I know I did. Sorry about that. <laughs> I, I will try to answer it the best I can. I I believe that it is very important. Um, I believe that any success within the IVF laboratory, we depend on each other, meaning we, the laboratory depends on the clinical staff to do a good job with their stimulations, growing of these eggs within the body before they get into the laboratory. Um, and the clinical staff depends on the laboratory to then, once we get the eggs, is to have quality control systems and and uh, uh, schedules and things in place within the laboratory to assure that we are doing um, and monitoring things to 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 provide a good environment for these embryos to grow in. Um, so the embryology lab can be detrimental to to the outcome if they have a bad environment or they don't do a good job with their quality control, monitoring the laboratory, the air quality, uh, the pH of the culture meter. There are so many different things that we look at, CO2 concentration, temperature, humidity. Um, we're constantly looking at all of those things within the laboratory to ensure that we are providing a great environment for these embryos to grow in. Um, so I really think it is we, we, we need each other, the clinical staff. We need the clinical staff to do a great job on their part, and we also they also need us to do a good job on what we're doing. So it's a real symbiotic uh, relationship between the two, the two parties. But uh, the clinical staff definitely does get a lot more, <laughs> a lot more credit for the successes <laughs> than the uh, embryology lab does. That's for sure. Yeah, I bet that irritates you at times. It's like, wait a minute, who do you think is growing these things? I mean, come on. Well, we've I've been doing it for so long that I, it's kind of one of those roles that you just accept, and and it's really, in all honesty, is is okay with me. It may yeah. bother other people, but I it, it, I don't think at this point it bothers me as much as it did 20 years ago. So well. You know, and I suspect that uh, that the uh, the REs you work with, um, and, and I think most REs would be tipping their hat and giving a great deal of credit to their uh, to their embryologist as well. So I suspect in the environment within you work within which you work, you would feel very appreciated. Um, but that does beg the question of uh, what questions should patients ask uh, about a lab? Uh, before they select a, a clinic, I mean, how we or should they just look at the success rates and uh, of the clinic as a whole? But are, are there specific questions that patients should ask um, to know whether or not the, the the laboratory is up to snuff? Well, I think I think that's a, a very good question, and it brings to mind um, a couple of things. As far as you brought up statistics. Um, I do think that patients need to be careful about how they how they acquire statistical information about successes of centers. <clears throat> the, well, that most people are going to the uh, uh, SART um, Society of Assisted Reproductive Technology website or the CDC. 
same stats, just one year behind uh, the CDC, um, has them, and, and we link to those. And Actually, I, let me take just a quick moment to say we have done a number of shows on how to interpret these statistics, okay. and you can find them on our IVF uh, resource page, but also on our How to Choose an Infertility Clinic page. But now I interrupted you, and I apologize. So no, no, no. Why should people be careful about the statistics? Because I, because the the SART the SART statistics they compare apple they they try their best to compare apples to apples. If you look on an on an IVF website, it's very difficult to interpret what they, what what percent of pregnancy that they're reporting. So I caution people to to use this. They should use the SART website because it is. A better area to compare apples to apples, even though you don't know patient population and what what cycles are being reported and right. not being reported. That's so, that's how those can be manipulated. That's exactly that's right. But it's the that's, best we've got. Yeah, the start. That, it is the best we have. So mm-hmm. that would be the first place I would look. Um, the other questions that you can ask specifically about a laboratory, I think experience is is a critical part of 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 a success of of the IVF laboratories. I think how they're managed, I think the uh the uh, experience of the embryologists that they have on staff, I think all of those things it's kind of not that much different than you would look for a doctor within the field. Um you would probably look at the if you were in, you know, Connecticut, you would look at the, you know, success rates of you know the clinics in Connecticut and maybe choose one that was closer to home to you. Uh I, I think that would be you know uh you know a start and then if there were a couple in this in a similar area i think that um you know it's a comfort level i think experience and success are, are a big part of how people should you know pick and choose their their clinic when you say the experience of an embryologist would you just ask uh if uh, how long they have been doing this uh would you ask if they are board certified or is board certification um, now I know you have it, but is that a a, a common thing to have, uh, or in, or is experience in the field more important? I mean, what specific question? How would somebody find out? Is what I'm trying to get at. What the experience of the of the embryologist is? Yeah, I think I think asking about experience, um, how long that they've worked in within the field. Uh, the the field is trying to change over to uh, more of an accredited. Um, board certified type of environment where you need to ha- document a certain number of cases uh document a certain number of success uh document a certain number of years within doing something and i think that's that's pretty important um because you know again when i started a long time ago um you know we learned it on hand uh you mm-hmm. know a lot of this stuff was animal uh work that we were doing and kind of crossed over into human and back in 1988 again when I started you know a lot of this stuff was experimental it was uh you know the IVF laboratory or program that opened that I was at Connecticut in Connecticut had just opened up so I was very lucky to be able to get in very early in the field and um really learn everything you know by doing um there's a lot more formal programs out there now that will uh teach embryologists not only technical skill but also uh educate them as to more of the science and more of the biochemistry and the mm-hmm. physiology of what's happening in in an embryology lab which was not taught uh you know 20 or 25 years ago and and you said to also uh, note how the embryology lab is managed. What do you mean by that? What, what do you mean by how it is managed? And, and what would be the question you would ask? Well, every laboratory should have a have a laboratory director who um, is either an, a medical doctor, a PhD, um, or hold what's called an HCL, the High Complexity Laboratory Director uh, certification, and. Um, it's important to know who that person is that is is running that running the show meaning not maybe not doing all the technical part of it but making sure that uh that compliance is 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 maintained quality control is maintained these are all things that from a laboratory are very 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 important you know we're 
we are inspected every other year by the College of American Pathologists and by the FDA, uh, the Food and Drug Administration, to make sure that we are in compliance with maintaining quality control, maintaining um, a quality environment so that these so the patients that are coming through the door understand that we are being monitored by outside facilities and that we are doing as best that we can to maintain compliance within within our laboratory. I, I think that's very important. Well, I think that a lot of people don't realize that there are um, there are standards that have to be kept and, and that you are being inspected. Uh, yeah, that makes good sense. All right, then... Um, so those are the questions that you might ask to kind of get a feel for whether or not a a lab is is meeting the requirements um or meeting the you know of the standards that you would want but if if the if you're comparing the sart statistics um and, and you're seeing success whatever however you're defining that by uh live birth rate then uh is that enough is that or, or should patients ask Specifically, the questions of who is your embryologist? Uh, who, how long have they uh, been? How much experience have they had? Uh, who is your lab director? Uh, would it make sense to be asking both the, those questions as well as just looking at the SART statistics success rate, or is it just enough to to uh, to do the SART uh, success I, rate? I think asking those questions are fair questions. Uh, most websites would have bios on critical personnel that are within an IVF uh, uh, program. That should include either the laboratory director or, um, you know, certainly lead embryologists that are there doing, um, you know, the day-to-day work within within the laboratory. I do think that that is, uh, uh, you know, important information. Um, so I, I don't think it's enough just to look at SART. I think it's a combination of all of those things, looking mm-hmm. at the SART numbers, um, looking at the, the, the critical personnel that are within the IVF program, and it's really a comfort um, a comfort level for patients. If, mm-hmm. if you're not comfortable in a, in, a, in a clinic, it's hard to have a positive uh, have a positive outlook. So I think that's also another factor that is, uh, and that you really can't quantify, you can't really measure that, but I do think that that is important as well. You're listening to Creating a Family. Today we're talking about what happens in an infertility laboratory. I'd like to take a moment to thank another gold sponsor and to remind you that it is through their generous support that we can bring you this show, as well as all the many resources that are provided by Creating a Family. We have Cryos International. They are a New York sperm bank, which are part of the world's largest international network of sperm banks. They offer excuse me, donor semen and semen storage services with the ability to ship specimen to more than 65 countries. We received a question uh, that, uh, I'm, I'm in a way, surprised we only got one question because I do hear this question not infrequently anyway. Uh, she says, I'm curious about the safeguards in place to make sure the correct egg sperm embryo are used. One of my hesitations about IUI and IVF is knowing there's a possibility my baby won't end up having the genetic link I think it will. Am I crazy for having this concern? When I asked my clinic, they kind of made me feel that way. Uh, so uh, the, uh, the, the, what she's asking about, of course, is the possibility for mistake or mix-up, uh, you know, depending on how you want you, to talk about it. So what procedures, is there, is there considered best practices in, in the field um, or uh, by the uh, inspecting bodies for uh, how uh, you make certain that the, uh, that the egg, sperm, or the resulting embryo um, are labeled correctly so you know who they belong to and that the correct one is being utilized, the correct sperm is being utilized to um, uh, fertilize the correct egg, that type of thing. Well, that's, uh, I think, a concern with every um, every infertility patient that is doing any type of treatment, whether it be... I think so, too. <laughs> I don't think she's crazy. Um, I don't either. I I have to say that there is a possibility in every laboratory that this is that there could be an, an, an error. We're still human, and unfortunately, these things can happen. Every I can say, though, that every IVF clinic 
andrology laboratory, embryology laboratory should have mechanisms in place for labeling material, for using color-coded um, tapes that are able to differentiate between patients. Um, there are safeguards that we just general everyday good laboratory practice. Before you use a dish, you confirm the patient's name. At the egg retrieval, you're confirming the patient's name with the anesthesiologist and and the nurse or the physician doing the egg retrieval. Before that retrieval takes place, you're confirming that the dishes that you have on your bench top are of that name. Um, these are some of the um, the mechanisms that we have in place here. If we pull out embryos from the uh, um, storage tank, liquid nitrogen storage tank, we ask a person to confirm that these are this vial or this cane is coming from this person. So there's checks and double checks, tapes, colored tapes, um, names, unique identifiers, last four digits of your social, uh, a, you know, a, uh, an ID that is created by any uh, electronic medical record uh, 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 that are that are used at the at the clinic. All these things are <laughs> ways to assure the patient and yourself that Mrs. Smith is going with Mr. Smith. Hmm. Um, and and when you say you confirm, you know, the uh, as you're taking the before the egg is added to the uh, to the dish, is it is it important that the confirmation be? I mean, is it part of the protocol that the confirmation be said out loud, or you just ask people to make to make certain, you know, to double check, or or it, or does it specify that to, to actually say it out loud? No, we we say it out loud. We we do a name check out loud. We document the time and who the people were that did the name check. Um, we have a video system within our laboratory, and we have a monitor within the uh, the retrieval area, the procedure room. Um, we flash the name of the pa last name of the patient that we're using on that dish. Um, we do that at egg retrieval. We do that at embryo transfer. So the patient is able to see their name. They're able to see their embryos that are being loaded into the catheter. They see them being loaded into the catheter. So they 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 understand that this is, again, Mrs. Smith's uh, material. It's her dish. These are her embryos. They're going into the catheter. They see them being loaded. So we use these visuals as well as verbal checks um, to, again, assure the physician that we're using the right patient, they're using the right patient. Assure the anesthesi anesthesiologist that everybody can see the monitor. So um, mm -hmm. it's multiple people that are seeing that these things, uh, uh, that these identifiers are being confirmed, including the patient, unless she's knocked out for egg retrieval. The egg retrieval, they wouldn't. They, that's correct. But at least it's being confirmed by the anesthesiologist, the nurse, and the, mm -hmm. and the physician. Uh, but during the embryo transfer, the uh, you know the the patient and her partner are there. They can see all this procedure being done on the on the video screen for them. Yeah, exactly. So I mean, but not the egg retrieval. No, but but for the transfer. Um, the, the the patient uh, is is part of the confirmation process in the sense that you know, so this should give um, people I think that uh, uh, when people hear when patients hear the number of steps that are taken it gives a huge sense of it's it's uh, of, of of confidence which is not to say that mistakes it's, it's impossible but it's you know you reduce the possibility is what you're doing significantly I would I would assume. <laughs> That's correct. Yeah. And uh, uh, I'm a little surprised that her clinic was not receptive to that because I would I would assume this is not an unusual question. Um, is this uh, from from your perspective? Would this be a fair question for somebody to before they're choosing a clinic or before an egg retrieval, asking their doctor or asking the um, the one of the uh, the nurses or the administrator uh, of the clinic? What, what what type of double checks? What type of labeling? What type of what, what procedures do you have in place? Is this something that people can uh, that an, an RE or, or a nurse or an administrator would be prepared to answer? Yes, uh, we we feel this question more than you probably would think. Um, mm -hmm. It's it's not uncommon that you know not just your caller, um, but uh, we have patients here that are 
interested and concerned about the the same the same issues. Um, again, I completely understand uh, what your caller is is you know concerned about. I, I you know the patients here when they're concerned, and and the physicians usually it's the physicians that will talk to the patients because they're the ones in doing the the consultation at that point. Mm-hmm. And it's not an uncommon an uncommon approach by the patient. That's for sure. No, and I I think that when uh, and and clinics need not fear the question if they're if they've got these procedures. Um, I think it's very reassuring um, mm-hmm. when you hear about, it and then then from a patient standpoint, it, you can then relax and say, okay, you know, I'm the, the chances of something happening are fairly uh, are fairly small. Um, we have another question. This one from Catherine. She said, "Can you talk about the different types of PGD and how they impact transfer? Day six versus freeze them all." Um, I think it, we could. Uh, you might want to explain her question, you know, a little more detailed for um, for the the rest of the audience. We're going, so we're talking about PGD. When you do PGD, and whether or not uh, before you choose a uh, a clinic, you need to make certain that the lab either you need to know whether or not you're going to be freezing your embryos and waiting for a uh, doing a frozen embryo transfer or doing a day six perhaps transfer. So anyway, can you explain her question a little better and then answer it? Well, um, with PGD, uh, the trend has been going to doing more uh, trophectoderm biopsies, which are biopsies of the embryos on day five uh, or day six. Hang on just um, one second. I realized we had not defined PGD. Okay. Pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. Um, it is genetic testing on the embryo, usually testing for some abnormalities or a specific uh, a, a gene defect. Okay, go ahead. That's correct. Um, when PGD first came out, we did, and places still do, including here, we do a lot of day three uh, biopsies where we're removing one cell of maybe a six to eight cell embryo. The problem with um, the problem that they found with that was that there was a lot of mosaicism, which means that that cell that you pulled out and sent off for chromosomal uh, evaluation may not have been a fair representation of the entire embryo. Um, so, what happened is we decided to culture these embryos for two more days to day five or day six to the blastocyst stage where the embryo was much more resilient and you could pull out three, four cells so that you're getting a better representation chromosomally of the competence of that of that embryo. The, the amount of mosaicism was reduced, the error rate was reduced, and you were getting a much more accurate picture of what the embryo makeup is, whether it be aneuploidy, chromosomal, you know, makeup of that embryo, or for single gene. Um, The issue with freezing embryos and doing either doing a day six or freezing all, a lot of it has to do with where you are in in, in, in close proximity to the genetic testing laboratory. Here in, in New Jersey, we're lucky enough to have uh, a laboratory very close to us. So we could do an embryo, we could do a biopsy on day five of blastocyst in the morning, get results either late that evening or early the following morning, and do a fresh transfer. That may not be the same uh, um, the same situation as, let's say, somebody in you know, I don't know, Ohio, um, mm-hmm. they may be able to do the biopsy and they have to send that that biopsy through FedEx to a company either in New Jersey or California or, or Illinois to, to do the uh to do the genetic um workup on that biopsy and that would require them to freeze those embryos and use them in a subsequent cycle. So I think that that's part of it is how close in proximity is your clinic to the the testing laboratory um, mm-hmm. and there is a shift in in thinking that a lot of places are 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 feeling that doing fresh embryo transfers may not be in certain situations the best uh the best thing that we should be doing and that we should be freezing and doing subsequent frozen embryo transfers i, I don't we've think done that some we've shows necessarily on that. Seen it. 
I'm sorry. Go ahead. That's okay. I don't think that we've necessarily seen that here in, in, in our facility, but there are some places that are going um, almost 100% to uh, no fresh transfers, freezing everything, and then doing frozen embryo transfers after. It's, there's been some fascinating research, and we've had some of the, the lead authors on talking about it's it's you know it, no one the, the definitive answer is not there, but at least it does appear that you need not have. Uh, in, in the past, people were very hesitant to not do a fresh you know not even have the option of of a fresh transfer, feeling like that was their best shot. Um, but in fact, that may not be the case now. So we know at least enough to say that you that, that being afraid of 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 not having a fresh transfer. Is not uh, it's not something to be uh, depending on the quality of the freezing in the lab and all that is not in itself a huge problem. Um, who from a PGD standpoint can you describe? Uh, if uh, are all uh, are there specific questions that you need to ask from a patient standpoint uh, about? Uh, who's going to be doing the PGD? Because that's that is being done in the embryology lab, correct? That is correct. So, are there specific, like how many you do, or what, what should what should patients, if you know you want to have PGD done, what questions should you ask about who is doing it? Kind of the same questions that you would ask about the uh, person doing your your embryology um, experience. How many biopsies are there? Are they doing? We aren't doing. A lot of just to kind of explain our situation here, we don't do a lot of PGD, so we actually contract somebody to come in from the outside to do mm-hmm. the biopsy here for us. That person has done thousands and thousands of biopsies. I feel very comfortable that she is. You know, I've done probably fifty with her, and mm-hmm. she's incredibly competent. So I feel, you know, incredibly comfortable with her doing any biopsy in any situation here for us. There are other centers that do a lot of biopsies and they have people within you know, in house that are able to do their biopsies right there in house for them. Um but I think that's a fair question to to ask is, you know, where are you getting your you know, who's doing your biopsies? Is it somebody mm-hmm. in house? Is it somebody outside? How if it is somebody outside, where are they coming from and how much experience do do those people have? All right, you're listening to Creating a Family, and as you've heard from throughout the time, we've talked about our gold sponsors, but uh, we also have other sponsors that allow us to pay our bills and then to continue to bring you this show. Uh, and these are these are people who believe in our mission of providing unbiased, medically accurate information to the patient community. One way you can help us is by supporting those who support us. As I said, you've heard about some of our gold sponsors. We have others. So if you are looking for an infertility clinic, an infertility attorney, or a therapist, or a sperm bank, or an egg bank, uh, donor egg or a surrogacy agency, please make your first stop the Creating a Family directories, which you can find on the service provider page of our site. You can search by location, services provided, just a whole host of factors that we think are important when choosing. And by using these databases, you support those who support us, and, and we thank you. Also, if you have enjoyed this show and want to help us grow, please rate this podcast on iTunes. If you have iTunes on your computer or phone, just type in the words Creating a Family, uh, and you can rate us there, or you can go to the uh, radio show page of our website, creatingafamily.org slash radio show. Click on the iTunes button, and it will take you directly to our page on iTunes, and you can rate us there. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Scott, not Dr., I'm sorry, Scott Kotka for uh, talking to us today about um, embryology labs, kind of uh, pulling back the curtain on on something that um, we don't know a lot about. Um, If people were wanting more information about you or about the center where you practice, uh, what website would they go to? Uh, FertilityNJ.com. And there's, you know, bios and information, a uh, whole bunch of infertility information there that they can access um, on that website. And that's uh, at the Reproductive Science Center of New Jersey, and he did that, go to that website, and you can get information on uh, how to contact them or how to contact uh, Scott, either one. Thank you so much for being our guest today on Creating a Family, and thank you, everyone, for listening. I will see you next week.
Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's Employee of the Month, two months in a row. Leave a message at the... Hi, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. I just had a new idea for our song about the Name Your Price tool. So when it's like, tell us what you want to pay, hey, 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 and the trombone goes, blah, 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 and you say, we'll help you find coverage options to fit your budget. Then we just all do finger snaps while a choir goes, savings coming at you, savings coming at you. Yes? No? Maybe? Anyway, see your practice tonight. I got new lyrics for the rap break. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Let's say you just bought a house. Bad news is, you're one step closer to becoming your parents. You'll proudly mow the lawn. Ask if anybody noticed you mowed the lawn. Tell people to stay off the lawn. Compare it to your neighbor's lawn. And complain about having to mow the lawn again. Good news is, it's easy to bundle home and auto through Progressive and save on your car insurance. Which, of course, will go right into the lawn. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company, affiliates, and other insurers. Discount not available in all states or situations.